So, if you're just dropping in with us this morning, okay, we are today in uh, the third session of the third block of our walk through the book of Acts, okay? Uh, And uh, if you've read Acts before, you'll know it's a pretty long book. Like, there's a lot going on. Luke, who wrote Acts, the kind of combination of Luke-Acts, is a ginormous portion uh, of the New Testament kind of writing. Uh, And so what we wanted to do was we wanted to spend, uh, kind of spend some time, taking our time walking through um, the whole of Acts. We didn't want to water it down, okay? Normally when we get to big books like Acts or Isaiah or something like that, we kind of go, well, there's, you know, there's a lot going on here, let's just do like six sessions or let's do 10 sessions and hit some of the highlights. But we wanted to do the whole lot. What that really means is something like about 25 sessions, okay? So well done, those of you that have been with us now, into the third block. First block, okay, was all about events that happened at home. Church comes alive in Jerusalem. Stuff starts to happen there. You've got the first church, the first healing, uh, the first martyr. There's all sorts of things happen in that first block at home, okay? So this is uh, the church beginning uh, its journey, okay? And it's happening at home. And then the next block, which we've made our way through, is with neighboring kind of areas, right? As the church scatters geographically, it kind of spreads. So first of all, it's into neighboring regions. What kind of happens there as it happens? And now in the third block, all right? We're into what happens as the church comes alive in different cultures. The places that it's spreading to now, these are not kind of predominantly Jewish in terms of their culture. They're different. And what happens as the church comes alive? And so the last couple of weeks, okay, it's been all about what's happened as the church has been scattered uh, to some of these different locations and some of the unique ways which the church came alive in Antioch and in Cyprus. And then in this week, we are in Turkey. Most of you thinking holiday destinations, right? We're in Turkey, right? And there's lots of traveling involved in this particular block, okay? The the actual, the whole part of the scripture that relates to us is Acts 13, verse 13, right through to Acts 14, verse 20, okay? So there's lots going on. If you get your Bible there, you'll see, like, there's lots happening, okay? Shorthand is there's kind of three incidents that take place or three encounters that happen uh, that are kind of noted in this block in Turkey, And there's lots of traveling, okay, from where they were, Paul and Barnabas, okay, walking from Perga to Antioch, Pisidia, there was, it was roughly a hundred miles of walking, most of it uphill. Then the next part at the start of Acts 14 is another 90 or so miles to Iconium, most of, most of it through pretty rugged, mountainous kind of terrain. And then finally, from Iconium to Lystra is another 25 miles, just 215 miles-ish of walking in this kind of short bit of scripture. And there's lots of commentary, okay, on why. Why on earth are they even there, okay? Some of them, the places they go to, they're not particularly obvious from where they were, or even in terms of status or size. It doesn't feel like it's particularly strategic for them to be there. Perhaps it's because it's relatively close to where Paul had grown up, okay? It's close to home for Paul. Perhaps it's because Sergius Paulus, who we met last week in Acts 13, had given them contacts or places, you know, references where you should go here. I know somebody here. Why don't you go to this location? Maybe it's because of that. We're not really sure. And there isn't anything in the scripture to tell us exactly why. But yet here they are. And the church is coming alive in Turkey. And leadership, okay, which really is kind of at the heart of of what is happening in these passages today. Leadership, 
when we talk about it, when we boil it down, really, leadership is about moving people, moving things, isn't it? It's really about moving things. It's about hopefully forward, hopefully deeper, sometimes just moving people or moving things through where they find themselves right then. It's about moving people. And the challenge whenever we think about it from time to time is how? How do you how do, you do that? You see, the temptation as a leader, okay, is to be forever like pointing forwards at destinations, right? It's forever pointing to the future. We've got to go here. We've got to go here. And then the second it feels like you're moving, okay, well, we're going here actually, guys. And now we're going here. It's constantly to be going all the time, change all the time. We need to go, 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 go. And pretty quickly what you realize is you've just alienated people. They're like, just like... Let me settle down for a moment. You alienate people. And the thing is, if you're going to move people, you have to connect them to the story of how they've got to here. If you're really going to move people, you've got to connect them to the story of how they got here, the origins, the problems. How did we get here? If you're really going to move them to there, they need to know how they got here. One of my favorite companies, okay, is a company called Hyatt Denim. They are based in Wales in a small place called Cardigan, okay? I love them, but I can't afford them, right? That's the basic premise of Hyatt Denim, okay? Anyway, listen to how they talk about their company, all right? This is taken directly from the how of their website, okay? Cardigan is a small town of 4,000 good people. 400 of them used to make jeans. They made 35,000 pairs of jeans a week for three decades. Then one day, the factory closed. It left town. But all that skill and know-how remained without any way of showing the world what they could do. That's why we've started the Hyatt Denim Company, to bring manufacturing back home, to use all that skill on our doorstep and to breathe new life into our town. As one of the grandmasters said to me when I was interviewing, this is what I know how to do. This is what I do best. I just sat there thinking, we just have to make this work. So yes, our town is going to make jeans again. You see what they're doing? You see what's going on in that little blurb on the website? Origin story, the problem, the solution. Now, please go and buy our 300-pound pairs of jeans, right? You see what they're doing, though, right? They're pulling on you to recognize the story before you run out and buy what it is they're selling. They're starting with the story. And in many ways, that's us right now as a church, right? It's our fifth birthday. Well, actually, it was our fifth birthday last month, but we'll not talk about that, okay? We just weren't planned enough to do cake and do everything now. We're five years old, okay? And we pause today to mark and to savor and to celebrate all of the things that God has done, to tell our story of what has been happening around the life of this church. We planted Central in 2016 in an arts venue in the cathedral quarter with nine people, right? There were nine of us. None of us knew what we were doing. We hadn't planted a church before. We just run Alpha and lots of good stuff it happened and we thought well maybe we should plant a church God's speaking to us calling us to do this so let's do it we didn't know what we were doing we were on Wednesday nights at that point we weren't even on Sundays there were barely any kids and then kids started to happen that's one of the interesting things okay I had a dream I don't often dream I'm one of those people that infuriatingly especially for my wife falls asleep the second my head hits the pillow right and actually it makes her even angrier like when she can't get to sleep as she hears me now snore right but anyway 
I don't dream very often. I pretty much, it's like a computer has just been switched off and then switches on again in the morning, right? I don't dream very often. And right before we planted Central, I had this dream, right? I had this dream that Joy and I were going to have twins. And this was obviously terrifying to Joy. Anyway, Joy was pregnant at this point. And we, we go to meet our friends, okay, to tell them that we were going to have a baby. And we sit down with them and, and we tell them, oh, look, we're going to have a baby. And, and I said, you know, the funny thing was I had this dream that, like, we were going to have twins. And I explained that I don't normally dream and there's not really any twins in our family. So this would have been a totally weird and bizarre thing if this had happened and said, like, I was actually gutted when we went for the scan and, you know, the, the girls did her thing and, and she's like, oh, there's the baby and it's healthy. And I'm like, is there just one? And she's like, yes, there's just one. And I'm kind of like, oh, amazing. But inside, like, oh, I got it wrong, right? So I, I tell my friends this and, and he straight away is just like, do you know what it is? It's a baby and the church. You're going to plant the church. We hadn't told him about Central. They didn't know what we were up to. He said it straight away off the bat. You're going to have a baby. You're going to plant the church. And so in October 2016, we planted Central. In November 2016, we had Elle. And Elle will forever be the walking reminder for me. You saw her running around with me before church. She will forever be the walking reminder of how old this church is. She's just a P1. This is just a P1 church in many ways, right? And I feel that about my leadership of this place. That makes me a P1 teacher or something like that. Anyway, that's how we got to here. That's the start. That's the story. Ask us about it sometimes if you want to hear all the bits and bobs because there's an awful lot has happened from us to get from there to here. And I tell you that today because what we really want is for us to say that and this is our start. Now come with us as we try to reach a city with life, with hope, with Jesus. That's what we're trying to do in the life of our church. And as we looked through the story a couple of weeks ago, and as we gather to eat cake today and to celebrate, we're trying to connect you to the story of our past so that you might give yourself to a picture of the future. That's what it's all about. And that's pretty much exactly what Paul does in the passage that we're going to read in a little minute. It's exactly what Paul is up to as he leads in Turkey and sees the church come alive in the midst of very obvious response and maybe equal parts rejection. He is connecting his listeners to the story of the past so they might give themselves to his picture of the future. And I think it speaks to two things today, okay? The first thing is it speaks to the real thing and it speaks to the sure thing. I'm going to start with the sure thing. Our reading's pretty long, as I said today, so I'm going to just take two sections of it, okay, and then I'll try and explain what's happening around what we're reading today. So the first part we're going to read is from Acts 13, verses 26 to 43, and this is God's Word. Us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors. He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. 
God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now, when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. As you'll no doubt have noticed, okay, and you'll no doubt know, the COP26 conference has now come and gone. And it was talked about and it was worked towards as this moment, right? That was kind of the whole heart of what they were saying was like, we have this moment now where leaders from all over the world could come together to try and set some things into global agreement to tackle the global climate crisis. And all the narrative around the conference was that it was our last chance, right, to try and hold the temperatures rising no more than 1.5 degrees, right? That was kind of the heart of the narrative. This is our chance. This is our moment to do something about it because if we don't, it will be too late. Keep 1.5 alive is what you kept hearing around the conference. And the point was all about the moment, right? It's a moment right now. We need to do something that will need our action before things happen and we can't go back. And N.T. Wright, speaking on the passage we've just read, okay, he, he, on a moment like COP26, he writes this. This is something strange and new in the Western world where the prevailing philosophy is that we've more or less got everything right with our modern democracy, our business, commerce, and industry, and that if we just have more of the same and remain calm and sensible, a bright future is assumed for us, our children, and the world. But it's not, right? The whole point from the conference was, it's not. If we just do more of the same, a bright future is not assumed for us, our children, and the world. A brighter future will not happen if we just keep calm and sensible and carry on. It's like how Patagonia has become one of the brands of the moment, right? I love Patagonia. They're a genuinely brilliant company in terms of sustainability and all of that sort of stuff. And yet in our Western world, the biggest issue isn't even sustainability. It's the sheer consumption that we have all bought into. I mean, it's Christmas soon, right? Just look at the frenzy around the city center as people carry like 25,000 bags around shops and just buy, 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 buy. And so in the West, we just exchange our massive consumption from other brands to Patagonia. But the issue remains. And the urgency that Paul injects into this part of the Acts narrative is the same kind that we've seen around COP26 and a moment to change how the future 
will be. It's the same urgency that he's speaking about in this passage. You see, this is a typical synagogue that you would have seen for those Jews, the diaspora, as they were called, that had been scattered, okay, to other parts of the world. The whole scene is really very Jewish-centric. We're in the synagogue. It's the Sabbath, and Paul and Barnabas are pretty much at what would have been like a textbook service at that time. And that meant they read from the law. That was the first thing that they did, okay? So they would have all been together. They read from the books of the law. And then it was normal for someone that was qualified as a teacher or recognized as a teacher to bring a word to the people there. Maybe especially if they were visiting, okay? Uh, If they had noticed somebody that had come from out of town as qualified as a teacher, what they would have asked normally was, well, could you bring a word of encouragement to us today? And so they would have done it. There's even some commentary that suggests perhaps Paul and Barnabas had worn like robes so that everybody knew they were qualified and from out of town. Actually, I graduated in robes uh, from my master's here on Friday, and I was laughing with Jamie that I may appear today in those robes. And then he was like, People will walk out immediately, Dave. And he proceeded to then call me just a fake minister. Thanks, Jimmy. But so sort of like there's like a picture that they're in the corner in robes and they look at, you know, the, the people that are leading it look out and go, oh, there's, there's Paul and Barnabas. Get, get them to share. They could encourage us today. And so they invite Paul and Barnabas to speak. And straight away, Paul launches into the history his audience knew and the hopes that they were still holding onto. You see what he's doing? It's the story of their past so that what he might do at the end is connect them to his picture of the future. And that's what verses 16 to 25 are all about, okay? They're really, if if you're reading them where you are today, we didn't read them uh, as we read together there, but if you're looking at your Bible today, that's what 16 to 25 is really all about. It's the highlight real history uh, of their past, okay? It's roots that stretch far into the past. He's making his way through some of the stories and the people that his listeners would have known all about. Abraham, the Exodus, the land of Canaan, Samuel the prophet, King Saul. King Saul, and finally landing on David. And really, it makes me think of two things when I read this block of Scripture. The second we'll get to in a moment, but the first, the wonder of how God uses people. The wonder of how, in working out his plans and purposes, he uses people. It's God's method of operation to choose and to use people some unlikely, some strategic, to lead them and direct them through one stage after another. God's purposes normally seem to take time, to take longer. Everything does when you're working with people, right, before the ultimate purpose comes to light. God uses people. This block of their history, for me, is the wonder of how God uses people. And in this sense, Paul is bringing it all to a climax in David, okay? That's kind of what he's doing through verses 16 to 25. He's kind of walking through their history, and then you get to David, right? The king, the one after God's own heart. Look at how all of their history got them to there. This is Israel's greatest king, and yet even he isn't enough. He wasn't the one that they were waiting for. He was still flawed. He still failed, and ultimately, he was just a man. Verses 36 and 37 say this, Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. He's just a man. As great as he was, as after God's own heart as he was, he was just a man. 
And he wasn't the hope that they were waiting for. He wasn't the hope that they needed. And yet, verse 37, but the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Where David failed, Jesus didn't. And that's the second thing. First, that God uses people. The second, that God's promise was at the center of it all. Right through it all, all of that history. At one point, it says 450 years of history to get from there to there. Right through it all, as empires came and went, kings lived and died, all of what the storied history of their fathers had meant, all of it, it had a thread. And the thread was God's promises. God's promise was a sure thing. How did Paul know? Jesus. Paul knew because of Jesus. Because through all of those roots, all of that backstory, all of the history that they knew and they had lived into, there had been one common thread. And it was that God's promise would be fulfilled in Jesus. This wasn't a history lesson with just a new ending. It was a history lesson with a warning. Something is happening right under your noses, and if you don't act now, you will miss it. Something is happening. Something has happened, and it's right under your noses, and if you don't do something about it right now, you'll miss it. Verses 38 and 39, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Something is happening, and if you don't do something about it, you're going to miss it. Jesus lived The resurrection happened. New creation has begun. The whole talk is laced with it, right? He's using some of the big words of our faith, right? Jesus' death on a tree in verse 29. Sin in verse 38. Faith, justification, that is Jesus paying our price. And the law in verse 39. And grace in verse 43. This is new life breaking out for the whole world. This is the sure thing you've been waiting for. All of your history was waiting for it. And here he is. But then we're waiting for the sure thing too, aren't we? We're all waiting for sure things. We're waiting, we're looking, we're hoping, we're longing for sure things in our lives, aren't we? Why? Because we build our lives around sure things. They are the kind of ground in which we build around, aren't we? Or at least we think we do. For those of you that have grown up in my generation, you have watched all of the things that were meant to be trustworthy, to be sure, fall in our lifetime. Financial institutions, politics, celebrity, individuals, even the church. And all of us have just watched a virus bring the whole world to a halt. If you're younger than me, the whole atmosphere is just the ocean that you have learned to swim in. We trust nothing. It's too good to be true. There's no such thing as a sure thing. It's how we feel, isn't it? Paul tells those in Turkey, there is a sure thing. This is the sure thing. Jesus and his way is the sure thing. Setbacks will come. Pain will come. Grief will come. There is no sure thing but this. 
that the same love, that same Jesus who came colliding into human history, their history with a 450-year backstory, a 450-year plan comes colliding into you today with a 2,000-year-old story. The writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews 6 wrote it like this. God did this, and when he says this, he means the journey from Abraham to Jesus, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. This is the sure thing. An anchor for the soul. In a world and our lives which so easily get cast adrift, he's the sure thing. And Turkey needed to hear it. And so do we. First of all, he's the sure thing. But secondly, he's the real thing. This is what it says. This time we're going to read from Acts chapter 14, verses 8 to 20, okay? In between what's happened here and and Acts 8 is that that they go to Iconium and they eventually get kind of chased from town in Iconium. Actually, ironically, it's kind of the Jewish leaders that stir it up, but they arrive, they start to minister, they get chased out of town, they actually start or are tempted to stone Paul, and so they get out of there as quickly. I mean, it seems a reasonable reason to get out of there, right? So they get out of there, and now they're in Lystra, okay? So they traveled 90 miles there and now another 25 miles to Lystra. So now they're in Lystra. And this is Acts 14, verses 8 to 20. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and they rushed out into the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human. Like you, we are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and they won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and they dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and he went back into the city. The next day he and Barnabas left for Derb. Fifteen years ago, the single greatest incident of mistaken identity ever happened live on BBC News, right? And it involved this guy that Jamie is going to pull up on screen for me by the magic of IT. Do you remember this guy? Have you ever seen this? This is Guy Goma, okay? Guy Goma, as it happens, showed up for the BBC that day for an interview for an admin job. 
Now, at the same time, a news program was running on the BBC where they were talking about Apple Music and kind of the move away from kind of records and physical things to kind of digital music. And on that show, they had invited a digital music specialist called Guy Cooney on. And when Guy Cooney didn't show up at reception, but Guy Goma did, they just assumed it was him. And so Guy Goma, who had come for his job interview, ends up on BBC News Live taking questions about digital music. The good thing is you can now watch it. The BBC are good sports and they've posted it as like the greatest thing ever, okay? He actually answers the questions, which is the best thing ever to watch. This is why his face is like this. They ask him, you know, where, where do you think music is going in the future? And he's like, oh, well, I am very surprised that music is... And he just like cobbles together. This is absolutely brilliant. You should, you should watch it. This is Guy Goma person who has dealt with the greatest moment of mistaken identity which has ever happened. And after Antioch, Pisidia, okay, Paul and Barnabas, they headed to Iconium, didn't go well, uh, and now they've ended up in Lystra. And in Lystra, this bizarre thing happens that we've just read. First, the healing, and as we all know, in kind of the start of the early church, that wasn't that unusual. These sorts of things happen all the time. But then, the response in the town. And that's the bizarre thing. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in Lyconian language, the gods have come down in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and raised the city gates because the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Bizarre, right? Hi, I'm Paul, I'm Barnabas. No, 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 you're Zeus and you're Hermes, right? It's bizarre, isn't it? On first read, you're like, what is going on here, right? Some sort of case of mistaken identity has happened uh, and it's like, what is happening? Well, here is the history lesson of Greek mythology, which is how they got to here, right? About 50 years earlier than what has happened now, okay? A Latin poet called, a Latin poet called Ovid had narrated in one of his plays an ancient local legend, right? And essentially, the supreme god uh, Jupiter, which was, who was called Zeus to the Greeks, and his son Mercury, which was Hermes, they once visited the hill country of Phrygia disguised as mortal men, okay? So that's why what's happening here is happening. They looked for hospitality. They were knocked back like a hundred times until eventually an older peasant couple put them up in this kind of tiny rural cottage that they owned. They gave them hospitality. They fed them. They entertained them while they were there, not knowing that they were gods. Later, the gods rewarded this old couple, but they destroyed by a flood every single home that hadn't taken them in. That's the mythology. That's the story that everyone in this part of the world knew. So, everybody knows the story. They witness a healing that's going on in their midst, and they put two and two together, and they get five. They see the healing and they think, well, the only people who can do that is gods. The gods have been before. The gods did this before. I don't want to be on the wrong side of the story. You're Zeus and Hermes. Please can we sacrifice to you. And that's basically what happens. And so Paul tries to set them right, okay? He tries to speak them out of it. He tries to talk to them about the real thing. But unlike in Antioch, Pisidia, we had a people with a history, a story, a Jewish story. They knew the backstory of the people of God to connect Jesus, to connect them to Jesus and what he'd done here, these people aren't Jewish. So he uses different kind of story to connect them to. He uses nature. 
We are bringing you the good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all the nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and he fills your heart with joy. I've been watching the, um, the TV series Invasion on Apple TV+. Plus. I'm kind of geeky like that and kind of like sci-fi every so often. But anyway, it's, I've inherited that from my dad, who's a total geek. But anyway, I've been watching Invasion. And there's this moment, like, about halfway through the series, where there's, there's kind of a thing happens with an Arabic man and a, wood, and a wounded American soldier, okay? that He's injured, he passes out in the middle of the desert, he wakes up, and there's an Arabic guy there with his donkey, and obviously, in the American's eyes, this person was the enemy, generally speaking, and he points the gun at him, and it's all very antagonistic. The Arabic man gives him some water, helps revive him, and then they go on this journey together. And they have no common language. They have nothing in common. They don't understand each other. They come from completely different cultures and sides of the world. There is no mutual understanding, like nothing between them. The guy is constantly pointing the gun at the Arabic man every time he doesn't understand or they take a turn that he doesn't think they should be. He points the gun at him every time. And the Arabic man constantly offers him hospitality. All the while, there is no connection between these two people because they can't, they can't understand one another. And then night falls, and they're sitting around a fire, and they're saying nothing. And the Arabic man looks up at the stars, and he goes, Orion. And the American man goes, Orion. And they both recognize a constellation in the stars. And then each starts to talk about experiences of sitting under those same stars in their different parts in the world. They still don't understand each other. But they tell these stories in different languages about what these stars mean to them, and events in their life that have happened underneath those stars. And all of a sudden, in this bizarre way, there is connection because they're connecting around something in the natural world. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. He has no history or past to connect them to. So what does he connect them to? The natural world, because it's all around them. You see all this. He did this. He did this. We're not the real thing. But the one that did all this, he is. And he who did all this, he did more too. And right in the middle of this bizarre encounter, speaking of Greek gods and the sacrifice of cows, and somewhere in the mix we almost forget in all of the chaos that I'm sure is happening outside uh, at that period of time, there is a man now walking around who had been lame from birth. He's now walking. Somewhere in the picture I like to think of the bizarre grace and chaos of somebody who could never walk, like walking through the crowds as they debate and one side try to sacrifice and one try to say, no, no, you're getting the wrong end of the stick. This guy is still walking through the middle of it all. In the middle of it all, there are two things that strike me about this. One, that persecution or praise couldn't stop Paul and Barnabas from talking about Jesus. The thing is that persecution, the persecution that they'd encountered in Iconium, where they were nearly stoned, and the persecution which was to come just afterwards where Paul was very nearly stoned to death, notice that neither of those incidents stopped them from speaking. 
In fact, the city that just stoned Paul is the city that Paul walks straight back into afterwards. And actually, when you read on in the narrative in Acts, he goes back to Iconium, and they go back to some of the other places that they'd just been, right? The persecution doesn't sway them one way or another. But the thing is that we often think of persecution as the worst thing, right? The primary tool in the devil's arsenal at putting us off walking with Jesus, right? If, God, if he's going to put you off, it's going to be persecution, right? We often think about it as the worst thing, the thing most likely to turn us off the course. But the truth is that praise can do that too. See, these guys wanted to heal them as gods. And it's very tempting probably to accept being healed as gods if somebody is trying to tell you that you are, Right? In our lives, we may not be healed as gods, but quite often we'll get praise for some of the things that we do, whether that's work or relationships, friendships, whether it's things that you're doing around the life of the church. We very often get praise, and honestly, praise is just as capable of derailing us in our lives because then we begin to believe that we are all that. Hands up and being honest with you, confession time, most of my life, praise has been the primary way that the enemy has tried to work with me. Mostly because I'm an arrogant so-and-so and, you know, all of that sort of stuff, right? The worst parts of my character are, are all of that end of things. When someone tells you you're really good, some part of me is tempted to always believe that I am, in fact, that good. And then you rely on yourself and then you stop relying on God. And then you rely on your judgment calls about your life and you stop relying on his. And then it's your voice that's more important than his. Persecution can derail you. It didn't derail them. But so can praise. But that didn't derail them either. And second, that this moment was all about a worldview. It's incredible in the midst of it all. Paul speaking so clearly about it. We're just men like you that they are looking at them and they want to follow them. You see, they hear about God and they get exactly the wrong message. I got my hair cut, not this time. Thank you so many of you for saying that I got my hair cut, right? I know it was a disaster beforehand. Anyway, I got my hair cut a couple of years ago in a reputable hairdresser's in Belfast. I'm not going to tell you which one. And I go in and I sit down, okay? And as you do, you make small talk with the person that's cutting your hair. It's a girl in this case. And she's working away and we get talking about it. And she eventually asks the question, which is always my most dreaded question in life. And what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I lead a church. And this weird thing happens, right? She instantly, like a decibel, like a hundred, shouts across the hairdressers to the girl that's like behind the till. She's like, I, I don't remember her name, so I'm going to go with Denise. She's like, Denise, he's one of mine. And I'm just like, what? Like, what is going on here, right? And so she goes on to tell me that she's been dating this guy and now she is thinking about becoming a Mormon, right? So, I mean, I'm already like, I don't know what's going on here, right? I'm already like, we are definitely not the same, okay? But she has now decided that because I'm a Christian and she's Mormon, we are the same thing. Anyway, she asked me about my faith and I'm talking about Jesus and all of that stuff and I share that I became a Christian when I was a teenager and Jesus came into my life, changed me, filled me, leads me and I started to talk about how God spoke to me and how we'd ended up planting the church and all this sort of stuff, right? And I think it's going quite well, you know, in the grand scheme of like opportunities to share your faith, which we all know, you know, shamefully, you probably do it less than you should. And I'm saying that as much from my behalf, like I just kind of skirt, well, I'm, I'm a church leader. Did you see the football yesterday? You know, that's most of our tactics. But I, I'm like, I've, I've got quite a good one here. I've got to tell this person all about Jesus. And then she starts to talk about her past. 
And the volume hasn't been turned down, right? She's still on decibel 100, right? At this point, the whole shop is looking at us while she cuts my hair and tells me about her past. And it's wild, right? There are two major features of this wild past, sex and alcohol, right? So, I mean, this is a PG show, so I'm not going to get into it, right? But she is like telling me all about this past that she's had. Everyone is now looking at us while she tells me. And she keeps saying, yeah, 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 we're the same, right? And she's like, you know, talking about all this stuff. She's like, ah, ha, ha, we're the same. And she's like looking around at other people going, we're the same, right? And she keeps going on. And then she makes a statement. And she's like, I mean, sometimes, do you not still like just really want to go out, get like super hammered and like pick up a girl? We're the same. And I'm trying to go like, we are not the same. I just want to stand up and tell everyone, no, we are not the same people, right? She heard one thing. And she got completely the wrong message. And the thing is, we laugh, okay, and we look at this bizarre incident in Lystra, and we just relegate it to the weird and wonderful happenings of the early church. But really, it's just like us in lots of ways. This is what N.T. Wright puts it. It's remarkable what can happen to a message when the hearers insist on inserting it firmly into their own worldview. It's remarkable what can happen when hearers hear a message and they insist on inserting it just into their own worldview. And you see, amongst all the bizarre things, this is exactly what happened here. You see, they saw a miracle and all they did was drop it into an existing framework of a Greek mythology that they already knew and they already believed. And the thing is, they aren't alone in that, are they? We do it too. On the big scale, it's how we get things like the prosperity gospel and other things like that. But on our level, it's how we read Jesus' life and teaching on healing, for example, and just interpret it as, well, that was for them. Or Jesus teaching on money and stuff as the only thing we can't have and him. And we think, well, no, we, I, I think I can. Or Jesus teaching on forgiveness and think that, well, he didn't know my pain or purpose or adventure or comfort or risk or worry or fear or pain or doubt. And on and on and on that we hear his teaching on things in our life and we just slot it into the way that we already see the world. We build a picture of Jesus around our lives and not our lives around the picture of Jesus. It is remarkable what we can do when we insist in inserting Jesus into a worldview that we already have. Jesus is the real thing. In a world of fakes, fake news, fake everything else. Jesus is the real thing. In a world full of lies, he's the real thing. And Paul and Barnabas' journey to the people of Turkey was a call to keep focus, not to let persecution or praise change the direction of their lives, and a reminder of just how easy it is to try and just insert Jesus into a way that we already see the world. Paul and Barnabas knew he was the real thing, and they lived like their lives depended on it. And Paul and Barnabas knew that Jesus was the sure thing. And they lived their lives like they were built on it. 